myself on. Good morning again. This week we continue the sermon series that we kicked off last week called Divine Design, Rediscovering the Christian Vision of Sexuality. For the next few weeks we're going to be looking at what does the Bible have to say about our sexuality. And let me just again encourage you if you're a parent and if you have perhaps primary school children and under to feel free to take advantage of our children's ministry programs that are happening. Uh, Through those doors we have Christ Junior Kids Church, Kids Church for our children from babies all the way up to year six. So please feel free uh, to make use of that. Now the reason that we're doing this series is to paint a picture of the Christian vision of sexuality. It's not so much to criticise what everybody else is doing perhaps around us, but to clarify what God expects of us as his people. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're a guest with us this morning, we don't always talk about sex and sexuality. Uh, This is not something we always do, but we do think that it's important to talk about periodically. And our hope and our prayer is that all people is that the church can be a place where all people can come to know and experience the healing, restoring love of Jesus Christ. And so this is why we're doing this series. Now last week we looked at the four core convictions that are at the heart of the Christian vision of sexuality. And if you weren't here, can I encourage you to jump online this week and listen to that. It gives some important background information for the the rest of the series. To use the imagery of the picture, it is the backdrop upon which we will paint in the weeks to come in this series. And today we're going to be starting with our first few brush strokes on the picture that we'll be painting in the coming weeks. And we're going to begin where we should begin, with Jesus Christ. In fact, maybe you read in the growth group guide or or maybe you saw on social media, but this week's sermon title is The Sexuality of Jesus. Now maybe when you read that or saw that or maybe as you're hearing it for the first time right now, it makes you raise your eyebrows a little bit. Perhaps it makes you a little bit confused or even a little bit nervous. See, the truth is we don't tend to put those two things together. It's kind of like saying the the meanness of Mother Teresa or peaceful political debate or or the fair, unbiased, even-handed commentary of Phil Gould. That's just for my rugby league friends, everybody else. But this is why, like most people, you've probably never heard a sermon or read a book or or read a a blog post that dealt with the sexuality of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about what Jesus said about sexuality because there's been countless sermons and books and blog posts about what Jesus thought and taught about sexuality, as there should be. But today, I'm more interested in the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? What did Jesus do during his life on earth? What can we learn from Jesus about our humanity and our sexuality? In other words, can we learn anything about our sexuality from the reality that Jesus was born to a virgin? 
That Jesus never got married and lived a celibate life. That Jesus' resurrection body is a male body. These are important questions that I think we perhaps never seek to ask or even answer. And this is a problem because to leave Christ out of the Christian vision of sexuality, it means that we're leaving out a pretty important part of the picture. And if we are going to truly properly understand the Christian vision of sexuality, we need to place the person of Christ at the centre of the picture. Now, I do think that there are a number of reasons we don't reflect more seriously on the humanity of Jesus and how that relates to our sexuality. Perhaps one of the big reasons we don't talk about it is the fear of being misunderstood. I mean, any time, as I've already said, we put the words Jesus and sexuality together, it can make us a bit nervous. And that's understandable, because in recent years there have been some ridiculous theories about Jesus. And so let me be very, very clear from the get-go. When I use the term sexuality, the word sexuality, I'm using it in a comprehensive manner. That is, I'm not just referring to sexual activity. I'm also talking about our biological sexual identity as male and female, and all that that means. And in this sense, Jesus experienced sexuality because Jesus was a man. And this, I think, is linked to the second part of the reason that perhaps we don't like to talk about this issue. And that is, we fear being irreverent. When we talk about the humanity of Jesus, when we talk about Jesus having a a human body and experiencing human sexuality, we feel like we're diminishing his divinity. We feel like we're trivialising him, as if it's somehow beneath him. And you know, this kind of thinking, it's not new. There was a group in the early church, and they were, or around the time of the early church, they were called docetists. And what they believed that was the body was less important than the soul. They believed that God wasn't really that interested in our physical bodies, but what God really cared about was just the spiritual, just our souls. And so they believed that the physical body of Jesus Christ was just an illusion. In other words, it was kind of like a costume that he put on for a little while, uh, but then he he took it off and he wasn't really human. He just appeared to be human for a little while. But over and against that view, the Bible tells us something very, very different. The Bible tells us that Jesus didn't just play the part of a human being, but that Jesus was real flesh and blood. That Jesus was fully God and fully human. And we see this in many different places in the New Testament, but perhaps most clearly in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Now, while you're turning there in your Bibles, let me just give you some context for these verses. You see, the writer of uh, the letter of Hebrews is writing to his recipients to encourage them to persevere in the face of some significant trials and some significant persecution. And he does not want them to stop following Jesus. He wants them to to not turn away from Jesus. And so he writes to remind them that not only has Jesus saved them and delivered them from sin and death, but also that Jesus Christ understands what they're going through. Because Jesus Christ knows what it means to be a human. Look at what we read in Hebrews chapter 2. 
Since the children have flesh and blood, and that's referring to you and to me, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, talking about Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Again, that's us. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now this passage very clearly tells us that Jesus didn't just play act as a human being, but Jesus Christ fully experienced what it means to be a human being. And today we're going to explore what that means for us and our sexuality. And we'll explore this under the three key movements of Jesus' life. His birth, his life on earth, and then his resurrection. What do those three key events teach us about our sexuality? Let's look at his birth firstly. And what we see in his birth is that the birth of Jesus reveals the dignity of our sexuality. Now the theological word for what Hebrews chapter 2 teaches us is incarnation. Incarnation. And this is the truth that we celebrate at Christmas time. That in Jesus Christ, God became man. Not just taken on the appearance of man, but God became a real flesh and blood human person like you and me. And I could read to you from our creeds and confessions, but I think Ray Ortland puts it well when he says, God became man, the immortal became a mortal like every one of us. That is what happened in the birth of Jesus. He entered fully into our mortality, our suffering, our losses, our pain, our dying. He was made like us in every way. It was only our corruption he did not allow in. See, this is the important point for us today, that Jesus became like us in every aspect of our humanity, except our sin, and this includes our sexuality. In other words, in Jesus Christ, God not only took on human flesh, but more than that, he also took on gender. He became not just a human person, but a particular kind of person. He became a man with all that that means. Todd Wilson in his book, Mere Sexuality, says, Because of the incarnation, God now has a Y chromosome, facial hair, a higher basal metabolism rate, all the physiology, anatomy and biochemistry that is distinctive to being a male. Think about this. God could have revealed himself to us in many different ways and forms. But he chose to become a man. God willingly embraced male sexuality. But maybe you're wondering, well, what about the other half of the equation? What about women? Does Jesus' birth have anything to say to female sexuality? And the answer is yes, it does. Because by embracing human nature and becoming human, God in Christ also embraced the virgin's womb. Todd Wilson again says this. He says, God in Christ swam in amniotic fluid for nine months. He fed from an umbilical cord. 
He travelled the vaginal canal into this world and he fed at his mother's breast. Now there's a few words I never thought I'd say in church. There's a few words you probably thought you'd never hear in church. Now I know that this might seem unusual to think about and reflect on, but we have to understand what the birth of Jesus Christ is saying to us. And that is, through the incarnation, through his birth, God the Son embraced male and female sexuality to the core. He didn't sidestep human sexuality, rather he embraced it fully. And here's the bottom line. When God came from heaven to earth, he did not come as an angel, he did not come as a genderless individual, he came as a man by means of a woman's body. And friends, this dignifies the inherent maleness and femaleness that we live in. This reveals the God-given complementarity of male and female sexuality. This is the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. What Paul's saying in those verses is that our sexual identity as male and female, it's not something incidental to us, it's not something cosmetic to us, it is fundamental and central to who God created us to be. And in the birth of Jesus Christ, God himself embraced male and female sexuality to its core. And this reveals the dignity of our sexuality as male and female. That's the first thing we can learn from the example of Jesus. But, despite what Will Ferrell from Talladega Nights might tell you, Jesus Christ did not remain a baby. Yeah, that's going to get more traction tonight in our PM service. (laughs) There's probably about two people, maybe Ben and someone else that's seen that movie. doesn't matter. Jesus did not remain a baby, but he lived on earth for 30 years. He grew up and became a man. And so we need to ask ourselves, well, what does the life of Jesus teach us about our sexuality? This is the second thing we can learn. The life of Jesus reveals the insufficiency of our sexuality. Let me explain what I mean. One of the most obvious and important truths from the life of Jesus is, listen carefully, that no one was more fully human or fully satisfied than Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus Christ never engaged in a sexual act. Think about it. Jesus never enjoyed the pleasures of sex or a lingering kiss. He never indulged in sexual fantasies or lust. Yet remember we're told in Hebrews chapter 2 that he was made like us, fully human in every way. That he suffered when tempted, verse 18. Even Hebrews 4 tells us that he has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Jesus was sexually celibate his entire life, and yet he lived a fully human, completely satisfied life. Now, do you realise how countercultural that is? I mean, in our culture, in our day, sexual activity is seen as essential to personal human fulfilment, to being a fully alive, truly human person. For example, there were... Two comedies released in the early 2000s, The 40-Year-Old Virgin and 40 Days and 40 Nights. Now, I wouldn't recommend either of them, but the the basic storyline of the first one is that it's a man's increasingly desperate attempts to have sex for the first time before he turns 40. 
The storyline of the second one is a younger man's struggle to last just 40 days and 40 nights without sex. Now, for many people in our world today, to call people to more than 40 days and 40 nights without sex, to more than 40 years without sex, to an entire life without sex, it seems totally implausible, even comical. That's why they make comedies about it. But Jesus' life tells us something very, very different. From his life and his example, we have to conclude that you can live a fully human, fully satisfied life without sex. And this truth about Jesus confronts every single one of us because it confronts the cultural lie that we are tempted to believe that you must be having sex to live a fully human, fully satisfied life. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. You may be thinking, well, Adam, as a happily married heterosexual, that's very easy for you to say. And you're absolutely right. I don't face this reality as someone for whom sex is not an option. I don't face it as a a single Christian or a Christian with physical or mental limitations or disability. I don't face it as someone in a marriage where where sex is non-existent or, or not an option for whatever reason. I don't face it as a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction. I don't face it as a a Christian who who has experienced abuse. You see, the truth of the Bible is that God has created us. God has created sex to be enjoyed and to flourish within the safety and the commitment of marriage between a man and a woman. And so if you, like me, find yourself in a context where sex is an option, you need to acknowledge that it's very easy to say you can live a fully human, fully satisfied life without sex. But we have brothers and sisters in Christ who have to live this reality. For example, Ed Shaw is a minister in the United Kingdom and is same-sex attracted. He writes, To go without sex is God's clear call to all Christians who remain unmarried, including a not-quite-40-year-old virgin like me. And the pity I receive and the pity I often feel as a result is often overwhelming. Sometimes the implication is almost that I'm not quite human because I've yet to experience such a basic human right and experience as sexual intercourse. And if you're single or same-sex attracted, then no doubt that confession resonates with you. But if you don't find yourself in that situation, I encourage you to pay close attention to those words. Because I don't think married Christians will understand or much less love our brothers and sisters in Christ who have to live this reality until we can sincerely empathise with their pain and their longing. But we also have to recognise the reality that Jesus Christ lived a fully human, fully satisfied life and he did so apart from any sexual activity. This is why Ed Shaw, the, the same man, goes on to write... He says, it's hard to see how the Bible could be any more positive about the celibate life. Its central character, Jesus Christ, was single and yet is held up as the only perfect human being ever to have lived. In Jesus, you see life to the full and his was a human life without sex. Or Sam Albury, he's a minister in the UK as well and same-sex attracted. He says one of the big things our culture around us is saying at the moment is that you are your sexuality. Your sexual feelings define you. They are who you are at the core of your being. They are you at your most you. And if if you are your sexuality, then sexual fulfilment is key. And so it makes the stakes incredibly high. 
And actually the real tragedy of that is that it means the world ends up saying, in effect, that a life without sexual satisfaction is not a life worth living. The church doesn't say that, I hope. The scriptures don't say that, but our culture does. Jesus teaches us, and in his life he shows us, that sex and romantic fulfilment is not the key to making ourselves complete. Jesus was, after all, the most fully human and complete person who ever lived, and yet was celibate. Now you might be thinking, yeah, but it's not really fair, is it? I mean, we're talking about Jesus. Surely Jesus didn't experience what I'm experiencing. Surely it wasn't as hard for Jesus as it was for me, or as it is for me. See, we have this assumption that Jesus kind of just floated through life and didn't wrestle with the things that you and I wrestle with. But it's just not true. Remember what we were told in Hebrews 2 verse 18, that Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted. And he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus gets it. He knows. He understands. He struggles. And yet he did not sin. And in fact, Jesus struggled far more profoundly than you and I ever could. Because he never gave in to temptation. C.S. Lewis once rightly said, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Wherever we find ourselves in life, we can turn to Jesus in the midst of the struggle and he knows, he understands and he sympathises with us. Now maybe you're wondering, how could Jesus do this? I mean, what, what motivated Jesus to, to live in this way? And the simple answer is that Jesus had something far greater in his life that motivated him. Jesus had a mission that was far greater than sex and sexual activity. We see it here in Hebrews chapter 2 where in verse 14 we're told that he became human to set us free from our slavery to death. That he became human to save us from the consequences of our sin and to sympathise with us in our weaknesses. Jesus Christ had a mission that was far greater than sex. And the truth is, if you're a Christian, so do you. You are caught up in the great love of God and in the great mission of God in this world. And this reality reorients, changes the way you look at every single area of your life, including your sexuality. Because there's something greater than sex in this world. And it's to know God and to glorify God with your entire life. And so if the birth of Jesus reveals the dignity of our sexuality as male and female, then the life of Jesus reveals the insufficiency of sexual activity to give a fully satisfied human life. But there's one more crucial event in Jesus' life that has implications for us in our sexuality. And of course I'm talking about the resurrection. And what we see is that the resurrection of Jesus secures the restoration of our sexuality. See, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most important events and doctrines in the Christian faith. And the resurrection of Jesus secures our resurrection as well. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that the resurrection of Jesus is kind of like a first fruits. 
In other words, Jesus is the first of many to be resurrected. And his resurrection shows what the rest of the resurrections will be like. And one of the things we see in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that it did not bring an end to his humanity or to his masculinity. After his resurrection from death, Jesus did not stop to be a human being and he did not stop being a male. Look at what he said to his disciples in Luke chapter 24. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Following his resurrection, Jesus is still Jesus. He didn't shed his human skin or his masculinity. Now, of course, there's differences, but the point is that Jesus' resurrection body is not something fundamentally different or entirely new. He retains his humanity, he retains his masculinity, and it's the same for us. Our eternal future is not one in which we are genderless or angels. It's one in which we have the hope of restored sexuality. Of course, Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 that there will be no sex in heaven. Because the act of sex, which ultimately points to the union of Christ and his people, will be fulfilled. And we will live in consummate joy, consummate ecstasy with God and with his people forevermore. But we will still be who God created us to be. And this gives us hope in our current experience of our sexuality. In fact, let me briefly tell you the story of Wesley Hill. Wesley's a committed believer and and is same-sex attracted He's written a book on his experience and he writes very candidly about the the difficulties of living uh, same-sex attracted and living a life of celibacy in submission to God's design. But for Wesley, it's the promise of resurrection that fills him with hope. He writes, he says, Nearly 2,000 years ago, Good Friday gave way to Easter Sunday. And at the end of history, when Jesus appears, death will give way to resurrection on a cosmic scale. And the old creation will be freed from its bondage to decay as the new is ushered in. On that day there will be no more loneliness. The wounds will be healed. I expect to stand at the resurrection and marvel that I am same-sex attracted no more. I will be whole and complete in the fellowship of the redeemed, finally home with the Father. The resurrection of Jesus Christ serves as a constant reminder that God is not finished with us. That one day when Jesus returns and we are raised, that will bring resolution to our struggles, peace to our pain, healing to our brokenness. And so let me close this morning with one of my favourite passages in all of literature from the last battle, which is the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia series written by C.S. Lewis. The characters have come to the end and they've been welcomed into Aslan's country, which is a a metaphor for heaven, by Aslan himself, the Christ figure in this book. This is what we read. And as he spoke, that's Aslan, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. 
all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. If we are going to have a Christian vision of sexuality, we need to place the person of Christ at the centre of the picture. And his promise to you right now, his promise to this cosmos that we live in, is behold, I am making all things new. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you know exactly where we are at before you this morning, Lord. Our hearts are open before you. And so we want to be open with you, Lord, about where we need you, how we need you. Lord, in whatever we're wrestling with and going through and walking in at this time, Lord, We want to invite you, Jesus, the risen and reigning King, the one who saved us from our sin, delivered us from death, who sympathises with us in our weakness and who rose again and reigns on high. We want to invite you into every area of our life, Lord, including our sexuality. And would you, Lord, please do a healing, restoring work in us for the good of our local community and for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand to hear this benediction? Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Would welcome